Welcome to the School of the Word. This is Lesson 41 in our teaching series, As in the Days of Noah, titled The Seven Churches. Our teacher is Alan Smith. Amen. That's right. I'll uh, say that I uh, believe that um, uh, James uh, Benfield's here with us this morning. I talked with him just a second, and he had a dream. And uh, what we're speaking about is the church this morning. Of course, the church in these end times, what is available to the church. And uh, with James' dream, what he saw in the church was the church stopping the demonic forces today. It would just, it just hold them, just tell them to stop, tell them to, to have the, uh, the authority. So, Lord God, I, we agree with this prophetic dream this morning that uh, all the powers of darkness that comes against this church family, those that are watching online, we just uh, raise up a standard against the, the demonic forces that come against the church of God through sickness, disease, finances, discouragement, confusion by the authority that's in the word of the Lord. We stand against that and raise up a standard against it, which is the cross of Christ in Jesus' name. And all of those that agreed said, amen. amen and amen. We do welcome you this morning. Do what? Don't forget to plead the blood, he says. That's the standard of the cross. Amen. We do welcome you all here this morning. Uh, as we are here continuing in our revelation teaching of the cross of Christ and who Christ is of the church in these end times. And uh, I was uh, hoping to have some type of a Christmas message. It's, we're not at Christmas yet, but technically this is a Christmas message. If you want to know the truth, we had the first coming of Christ, and this is talking about the second coming of Christ. And that's what we're to be looking forward to and to be looking to. Uh, last week we were speaking about, in the last few weeks, of the condition of the church, what we're seeing in the world. Uh, we discussed and looked at COP27, which was the gathering of religious leaders around the world in Egypt uh, under the banner of uh, the Pope and also uh, King Charles uh, III. Is that right? He's, he's Charles III. I think it is. And... Uh, are some of the main leaders. And it has to do with climate change. We've discussed the climate change and how this uh, new religion or it's a topic in which to unite global religions is what it is. You've got to have a topic in which to rally around. And uh, so the topic is climate change, uh, something that everybody in the world could feel guilty of. Now, the first thing you've got to understand, the first mission of that message is to make you feel guilty of doing it, if you can hear me. I heard a, a guy this past week disagreeing with everything that happened over there in Egypt. And I just, I mean, did a very good job in showing how it wasn't God, it was of the enemy, and then he ended it up. But now you know we are destroying the climate or the world. <laughs> I was like, 
but you've received the message, you know. And one one way that I really know that we're not is because of the message of the enemy. I uh, so it's you can disagree with the enemy, but agree with his message. And so the question is, uh, whose side are we on during this during this time? There again, I make the statement: I think we all are to look after the climate and the world, and I think that we always need good stewardship of whatever we're doing, the world or job, your personal hygiene. I mean, I think everything takes attention. So nobody's against uh, giving things attention and taking care of things. But that's not what's happening here. It's a, it's a message to unite religions of the world and that message has been climate change. Now, so as we move forward with that understanding, we have to ask ourselves, okay, where's the church in all of this? What, what do we do as a church? And we're going to look at the scriptures uh, today as we uh, move forward here. Uh, so as in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. All right, let's look at the time periods. Now, we're looking at the second coming of Christ I hope that it's being ingrained in your every part of your spiritual being, that the whole New Testament is about the first coming and the second coming of Christ. If you'll notice, there's been very little Scripture given unto the first coming in the New Testament. There was a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. You know the story. Now, the whole Old Testament was about his first coming. Then we have his coming at the beginning of the New Testament. Then the, basically the old, whole Old Testament is about his second coming. So, get, so you got first, you got Old and New uh, Testaments, but you can also say you got first coming, second coming. And when you start putting the scriptures into the context, the New Testament, in, that they're written in the light of the second coming of Christ, if you, it helps them make a lot of sense when you see what the setting is in which they are given. Now, the time period that we've covered so far uh, is the time period of deceptions, delusions, illusions, false perceptions, progressive reinterpretations, selfish prophets, running prophets, third-day prophets, the pagan church, woke culture, the apostate church, the saltless church, and today we're going to start into what I call the seven churches. So we're wanting to see what is the church, what will the church look like, uh, uh, is our first question. And then what does what is the church to do about it uh, is the second question. Now, if you, uh, you can turn also, uh, write this as a note, Matthew 13. Uh, Matthew chapter 13 uh, is also a, a place that Jesus gives the revelation or the understanding of the church. Just turn it right quickly. We're not going to, do a whole lot there, but turn to Matthew uh, chapter 13 real quickly, if you would. And in Matthew 13, uh, Jesus uh, gives, now we're talking about the, what we're, the context of this teaching is what does the church look like right before the coming of Christ? What does, what does the church, what is it going to look like? And we all have in our minds, we all criticize the church. Uh, we've all been guilty of this, of criticizing the church, how it could do things better. Or the church needs to do this, or the church needs to do that. Uh, 
Uh, and so the church, for the most part, falls way short of most of its congregants' expectations. We tend to carry a little bit of criticism all the time about what the church is and how it's doing. I just want us to look quickly, though, what Jesus said the church would look like. When you get to Matthew 13, uh, it, we see here that we have these parables here, a list of parables. Now, the first parable is the sower. Everybody knows. I'm not going to go over the parables. Everybody knows the parables. There's a sower, and he came out to sow and he sowed uh, seed and fell by wayside, hard ground, thorny ground. Then you had good ground, right? Does everybody know the parable, that first parable, the sower, it's called? So that first parable is speaking about what an individual will look like sitting in the church today. First parable is about an individual. What will an individual look like? Individual is the sower comes and he sows it, and as your heart hard, is it thorny? Is your heart in the world, the wayside? Or is your heart a place of good ground so when the seed is sown uh, that it takes root? So we can see what does, a, what does a Christian look like sitting in church today? It's the first parable of Matthew 13. So what is our job? Our job is to prepare our hearts for the Word of God. You want to be good ground. Now you've got to understand that all those grounds, thorny, uh, stony, hard, uh, wayside, all of these grounds, you don't have but one ground where the, the, the seed truly take root, and that's good ground. Well, good ground was either, if you're a farmer, when you clean up new ground, it's either thorny, stony, or hard, or whatever. So good ground at one time was stony, thorny, hard ground. Okay, so the idea is that we are to understand who we are in this day and in this age with all this stuff going on. Where do we go to as individuals to see where we are? Is Matthew 13, first parable. That is who we are in today's atmosphere. Our responsibility is the condition of our heart. And it just so happens that the good ground is where the, the Word of God takes root and, and springs up. Now, the good part of the good ground, he talks about individual, is Matthew 13. Um, it says, uh, now this is the part that people don't like to hear about an individual. But here, here's what Jesus is saying. If you're sitting here and you've had good seed and it's sown in your heart and it comes up and springs up, you can be sitting in here today and you can say, oh, woe is me. I don't know what's going on in the world. But if you can see your life and at one other time in your life you were a stronger Christian than you are now, something's happened. Something's happened. It's in verse 10 of Matthew 13. And the disciples came and said unto him, why speak thou unto us in parables? He answered and said unto them, verse 11, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Verse 12, For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not from him shall it be taken away, even that that he had. So if you find yourself not running with God like you were, 
what's going to happen to you, what was given to you, you're going to find is being taken away from your heart. That's a scary thought. That is a very scary thought. Now that was to good ground people. Are you with me? That's good ground. That's good ground people. So as individuals, I want you to see where you are in 2022 in this crazy world that we're in with the woke cultures and climate change gurus and all the above. I want to know where are we in the church? That's us right there. When you go into the next parable quickly, uh, you see that next parable there. Um, uh, let's go to verse, well, you got the one of the wheat and the tares. Everybody knows the wheat and the tares, right? So you got the wheat and the tares, and I'm not going to go through all these parables, but I want you to see the difference. First parable is to an individual. Second parable is about the church at large. It's not, it's not an individual, it's the church. You got the wheat and the tares. And Jesus is saying, okay, what you going to have in a congregation is wheat and tares. You, and, but he says, don't mess with them. Everybody's looking for a perfect church, right? Don't mess with them because the angels at the end of the age will do the, it'll do the dividing. So today's church, what's it supposed to, what's a healthy church to look like is we got wheat and tares. That's a, that's a healthy church. Now, you've got to understand something. The born-again experience is a supernatural transaction. Every wheat at one time was a tear in its previous life. Are you with me? I can go into the depths of that understanding. That's not my goal this morning. Why does he say, let the wheat and tares grow, leave them alone? Because a tear is a potential wheat. If the wheat's doing what it's supposed to do, it's a supernatural transaction. If a supernatural transaction doesn't take place, a tear is going to stay a tear just like you would have stayed a tear. Had something supernatural not turned you into. Everybody in here is a tear or been a tear to the kingdom of God, if you will. But we're looking for that supernatural transaction to birth us, born us again into to a wheat. So that's a supernatural transaction that's to happen within the church. You go through all of those parables, uh, and I'm not going to go through them all, but you go through those parables, if you'll know what the church looks like in this age, go to Matthew 13. First parable is an individual. Next two or three parables is to the church. You know, it says a mustard seed. Mustard plant. You remember? You got a little leaven in the lump. You remember that? And then, then Jesus goes inside a building and he leaves the multitude to his disciples and they say, well, Jesus, what in the heck meaneth this? What are you saying? So he starts telling them more about what the parables are about. Then he gives them another two parables. He said that there's a merchant and, and, and he had something and he sold it for something of great price. Then another one had a treasure and he hid it in the field. You remember that one? And he said, and he sold all that he had, and, that, and that's Jesus. Jesus gave all that he had to purchase you know, the treasure in the field. Then he goes on and said, the kingdom of God's like a dragnet. He said, you throw it out there and you're going to bring fish in, good, bad, and ugly. He said, bring them in. That's comparable to the wheat and the tare. And then he goes on to say, uh, the last parable, it says the kingdom of heaven is like a, a scribe who reaches into a satchel and he, 
pulls things out that are old and things that are new. And that's something. And 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 the reason and what that parable means is it's old and new. There there is a uh, the the Christian life. The Christian life is a life that must be calibrated every morning when you get up. Every morning. Every, every morning. Uh, to any of you that uses instruments, uh, if you understand how instruments work, you they have to be calibrated to something that's a positive. If you have a set of scales, you've got a true one-pound weight, then you put that one pound weight on your scales, and then you'll you'll bring your set of scales in alignment with that one pound, because a one pound's an absolute, something that never moves. So you have what's called an absolute, or y'all have heard me tell you before, you can run up to a stop sign, all of a sudden you feel like you're moving, and you look to your right only to discover it's actually the vehicle beside you. You, know, you keep hitting your brakes, and you feel like you keep moving. Uh, what what you need to realize is subconsciously. When that happens in our lives, your brain will automatically look to the side at a tree or a building or something. You just automatically do it, not even realizing it, trying to find something that's not moving in which to calibrate yourself to so you'll know if you're moving or if they're moving. It's called calibration. The, main, the brain does a psychological thing. And so you have to constantly be calibrated. And I was talking to somebody the other day, and they were saying about their that they had great human reasoning. And I said, well, human reasoning is a wonderful thing. It's a great thing. I, you know, I have nothing against human reasoning as long as you calibrate it every morning. Yeah, that's fine. But you got to calibrate off of true north. And, and in other words, you got Christians have an absolute, something that's established, something that's not movable. Every morning when we get up, we calibrate ourselves to the Word of God. The Word of God is what something that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It never moves. The reason that's important is so you have something to calibrate your life to. So when you're out here in the world and we're living life using human reasoning, we'll have good human reasoning because we were calibrated this morning with due north. The longer you stay away from calibration, the further off your reasoning is going to be. Can somebody say amen right there? So it's recommended in the scriptures to do it every morning. Your first time when you get up, you need to recalibrate. Don't need to turn the phone. First thing you look at your phone, you're not recalibrating. You're looking at the calibration of the world, what's going on. I can't help it. It's important in these days that the people of God recalibrate every morning. So as we move and the world's moving around us and makes you almost car sick, we've been calibrated to something that never moves. It's the same. It's the, it's the truth. Now, the truth is important to calibrate true. Now, so what's happened to the world today? What's happened to the world today is it's out of calibration. What's wrong with the United States today? It's getting out of calibration. The further away from God you get, the more God you take out. Why would, why go to the Ten Commandments in the courthouses? At least it kept us a little bit calibrated. Now we're losing our calibration. We're into human, total human reasoning. Human reasoning thinks it's right when it's not. That's the scary part.
You think you're right, but you're not right. Nobody gets so spiritual they don't have to recalibrate every morning. Can I say that again? Nobody is so spiritual that you don't need to recalibrate every morning. Okay. Now, with that in mind, you see the church, what the church looks like in the world, individual, Matthew 13, first parables about me, next group of parables about the church and the world, and then the last part of Matthew 13 is about what Jesus has done about the individual and the church and the world. That's what the last parables are about. It's what Jesus did behind the scenes on our behalf. So I think it's a wonderful plan that God's got for fallen man. <laughs> I'm just, just, I at least want to kiss him on the hand when I get there. He, he's done a good job with us sinners. I'll tell you what. Now, one thing he says about this, it says the end's not yet. I'm going to move quickly. Matthew 24, and Jesus answered, said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name. You know the scripture. We read it last week. But he says, but the end is not yet. So we see all these things. He said, it's actually going to be birth pains. And we all know, and I said it last week, if you have a birth pain, we all focus on the pain, but you also got to focus on, hey, there's a birth of something, right? So the birth is the second coming, but you're going to have birth pains before See, the, when Christ came the first birth in Bethlehem, the second coming is going to be just like the first birth. There's going to be pain with it, okay? But there's still a birthing of something, and it's the second coming of Christ. So, now I've had you the last several weeks, and I'm kind of doing a little summary here because I'm headed to something here at the end of this. I've got to remind us, or if I don't do this, you can't get what I'm going to say. Christian versus Christianity. Now, we've been over that. I think everybody's got that pretty well, right? you got the world of Christianity called Christendom, and true Christians are underneath that banner. When the world looks at Christianity, they look at Christendom. That's everybody that wears a cross around their neck or says they're Christian. We need to understand the deception. Now, you got the world, you got Christendom, which is this world of Christianity, and then you got true Christianity, which means you must be born again. Now, there's a difference in Christianity and Christendom, and you must be uh, born again. Now, considerations. Christendom is called the universal church, and this is what happened at COP27 in Egypt. The United Nations called all of the religious people of the world together. Uh, it's called universal uh, church. I also went over that uh, several months ago about how the thought idea came into Rome was uh, through Alexander the Great. He'd conquer these countries. He'd let him keep their religions, and yet he was their boss. So they loved him because he allowed everybody to keep their religions. Then that got into what we call the universal church. He was the first one to start using that. He's going to have a universal church. All the religions come together, and it's still with us. Now, was that birthed by Alexander the Great? No, it was birthed by Satan himself. And just mankind picks up on it. Now, you got to understand something. To the human nature, it's a sweet thought to have all religions come together. It'll find a little sweetie goosey part right in your heart. All right? For some reason, it sounds sweet. All right? And kumbaya, that's not exactly right. So what happens is we think, well, that's sweet, but everybody can get along and, 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 and all that. But the problem is the wages of sin is death. We got a problem here. So the remnant or the true born again uh, Christians in the end times, and you got culture, which is religion versus enlightenment. And I've 
I've already taught you all of that. But you got to understand, we're fighting. You got three players here: Christendom, the remnant, and got culture. Now, I wish the world was all we had to worry with. As you get over into the Book of Revelation, you'll understand Christendom is the big problem. You see, in COP twenty-seven in Egypt, they used the Pope and they used uh, King Charles III as their reference points of these great of the great leaders. And but now it's just it's a funny thing to me that all the other religions will come together on a, on the Christian Christian religion banner. You notice that they all came together, but and they allowed them all to have their gods, but still you had the banner over the whole thing was Christendom. They didn't go to Mecca. They went to Mount Sinai for their new Ten Commandments. There's a reason that it's under that banner. You got to understand, church. We are the church. The so-called church is the problem in the Book of Revelation. Not the world. Well, it is the world in the church, but the world takes on a type of religion. That's what you got to understand. You don't have Christians, Christendom. Uh, they're not as bad as the world, but they're there. And then you got the world. No, <laughs> you got Christendom's a problem. And I hope that hurts your feelings. It also allows you to see how closely related the enemy is. He's trying to, t he's already got the world. He's not trying to take that over. He's trying to take over the church. That's our problem now. And he does to a certain degree. Until Jesus comes back, and uh, he has an incredible way of setting this thing straight. Now, here's what we want to understand also. Mixture creates confusion in the church, and which we have today. John 4.1 puts it this way, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits where they are of God. So we see that that's a problem. It also tells us to test all things, hold fast what is good. That's what it says in Thessalonians. So we see we have this mixture problem, which I've taken you through a little more depth in previous teachings. Now, controlling the environment of the world is a symbolic and prophetic takeover. You got a physical environment, you've got a spiritual environment. So it's 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 a takeover to own the the atmosphere or the environment of the earth. This is a global takeover. It's what it's not just one country. It's a global takeover. Why do I think we're in the last days? It's because you leave it from a just a country being taken over to a global. Part of the greatness of the United States was the United States was one catalyst in which usually kept in times past this world takeover taking place. And now it looks like we're beginning to move into position of being in agreement with the takeover. Now, could this convincing fear lead to famine and scarcity? Now, notice I, I use words on purpose. Convincing fear. You see that? Convincing fear will lead to famine and scarcity. In other words, you don't use fossil fuels. You can't farm. And, and, and everybody, oh, isn't this great? And I'm like, you're going to freeze to death and you can't eat. Is there... I mean, I'm all for electric, whatever. I'm all for it, but don't we need to live in the meantime or something? Right? It's just uh, it's amazing to me. 
but the convincingness is, is, is the fear will actually create the famine and the, and the scarcity. The, that convincing fear will produce it. And you'll see this is where we are now. Convincing fear creates faith in fear for control. Faith and fear for control. Faith-inspired climate justice is what COP27 is all about. It's faith-inspired, so now they call all the religious leaders together, faith-inspired climate justice, they call it. Now, I want you to see this. They are encouraging religious leaders to be engaged in this dialogue and to show how it is a sin uh, when we use gasoline, any type of fossil fuels that generate uh, a carbon output. And I've been over that one with you. Now, what about the church? Here's a good question. What about us? You got to understand this on the outtake. All human kingdoms sooner or later become Babylon. It's just the way it is. You're going to say, was well, this Babylon or is that Babylon or, or, or is this? All human kingdoms sooner or later end up becoming a Babylon. Now keep that in mind. There's a possible truth. I know it's, believe it to be the truth. Babylon is about convincing people and controlling. Now, if you'll notice my beginning thing up there, but what about the church? All right, but what about the church? Babylon is about convincing people and controlling. So the battle and the war here is you have two things. Number one, we've got to convince the people. Number two, so we can control them. All right? Now, there's a difference in the church and the world, and I want us to, you got to catch this slide. you got to catch why I'm trying to show us in these last day church. We've got the church, for some reason, we have problems bringing definition to this almost sublineal operation. Now just try to catch what I'm saying. It's, it's kind of between the lines, but it's a mystery and you can see it. Babylon is about convincing people and controlling. The church is about helping people and setting them free. Now you can say, Alan, I don't, well, what's the difference? It's a big difference. The church is about helping people and setting them free. Now here is the battle the enemy uses this. Christians today struggle about homosexuality in the church because we should love everybody, right? You have certain Christians that struggle with that. Uh, we have Christians and all of us struggle with sin and other people that are in sin, maybe that not a particular sin that we've chosen today, but another sin. And so, but we all want to have love towards everyone, right? Now, keep in mind this. The church is about helping people and setting them free. There's a difference in convincing somebody and helping somebody. We try to use the gospel and convince the world. I'm telling you, that's the world's method. Let me get into sales here a little bit. I sell cow manure. Everybody can't do that. 
Very few have ever done that. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you my biblical secret that I learned on how to sell cow manure. Y'all ready to hear it? Yeah, I'm creating my competition. <laughs> you don't convince people to buy your product. You show them how your product will help them, and they will buy it every time. It's the way it works. I don't go in somewhere and try to convince them on why my product's better than others. I go in and try to see how I can help them, whether they buy my product or not. And that's a genuine move. But the human spirit can detect if you're trying to convince somebody of something or if you're trying to help them. Why am I so proud of Samaritan's Purse and a lot of these ministries? They just help people. It's because I know they're a good salesman of the gospel. They know the key to the human heart. You help people. You don't help them so you can convince them. You can't convince people into salvation, have you noticed? Our hope is to show each other our need and our message is on how Christ can help that need. That's the message. You don't have an argument or a debate on trying to convince each other because I got more evidence than you got. Won't work. You're talking about a God that you can't see. You're talking about Jesus Christ who died for you in a country which most people in here has never been to. You're trying to convince people of that true story? Can't sell them that bag of cow manure. I'm telling you. If you convince someone, they won't hang for three or four months. You wonder, well, why didn't they stick? Because somebody convinced them into salvation instead of them receiving the help that comes from Christ, which is salvation. Now that, what I just said is really more complex than I just said it, but I don't, have, don't know how to say it any other way. So I hope you catch what I'm saying. Hope you receive what I'm, test what I'm saying. But trust me, if you really want to give somebody the gospel, go help them with what their need is. If you want to get rich, find out what the world's needing, go make it and say, hey, I can help you with this. You, you don't ever, you can't sell your great idea. The only thing you can sell is what somebody needs. People that get rich don't have a great idea, invention. Everybody thinks, I got to have a great invention so I can get rich. That ain't the way it works. I mean, if, if, you're in a, if you're in the desert, what do you think the biggest market is? <laughs> guess, guess how well you're going to be received, Right? In the gardening business, everybody's, you know, they want cow manure and potty mixes and things, so there's a need there. Just so happens it doesn't that many people do it. Nobody will mess with cow manure because they think it's a demeaning, humbling, humiliating job. And I take advantage of that. It's not that bad. My cow manure's not dirty. It's never hit the ground. Okay, you can figure that one out later. All right. Yeah. I, uh, that wasn't the spirit, okay? Uh, that was that was Farmer Allen. All right. You are not convinced of salvation 
but you receive the help of the truth unto salvation. Okay? You're not convinced of salvation. The church needs to quit convincing. Understand, you, you can't help people to try to convince them. You help them because they have a need. And they will receive because you're helping their need the message of Jesus Christ. They are convinced. If you've got Jesus and you're helping me in my need, I need groceries, I need whatever, then all of a sudden there's a supernatural thing that happens in the human spirit. I want what you got. And until the lost world wants what we've got, they're not going to receive it. And we must quit trying to convince people and start helping people. That is the homosexual. It is the transgender. You don't convince. You help. Now, you got to understand that as we're moving forward into these, to these seven churches. Now, now, the first eight verses are the first, the key to this book. Now, we looked at Matthew 13 quickly, and we saw that's the church and the world, what it looked like. Uh, Matthew 13 is uh, somewhat of a mini, if you will, what the church looks like in the book of Revelation. So we're going to go to Revelation. We're just going to do the first couple chapters, uh, three chapters perhaps, and look at what does the church look like. Uh, in this world. Well, I got to give you a little bit of a, we got to go through chapter one just a little so I can get you into chapter two, which begins these seven churches. But we got to get the backdrop, the background of what's actually happening. And this is what happens. Now in Revelation 1.1, we have the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angels unto his servant John. Now I did this one slide and then this will be about the last one that I did last week, perhaps one more. But we see in Revelation 1-1 the revelation of who? Now, so one thing we understand about being a church, there's more about Jesus to be revealed to every one of you in here than has been revealed yet. You do not know there is all there is to know about Jesus. There's more to know, every one of us. We need more of this revelation of who Jesus Christ is. And especially in this day. So then John, pen, and by the Holy Ghost, by God himself, he gave John this, he gave him these seven churches. He said, now write this letter to them. So we're going to look at these churches, not necessarily the letter. But we want to look at the condition of the church and what was going on. That's not the revelations, and I showed you this last week. The revelation is Greek, apocalypse, which means unveiling. Uh, so we know this is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Paul said that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. So Paul was seeing, he understood that. And so he said that I may know him. Now as believers sitting in this room this morning, our hope is that we're all saying that I might know him that I might know him and the power of what? Of his resurrection. So if that's the question, I have to believe that it could be fulfilled. I might know him more and I might know more about it. And I think that the church of the day, as we'll see, one of its lackings is the power of the resurrection of the cross of Christ. 
Now, the time is near. He goes on in verse 2 and 3. We bear record of the Word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that He saw. Blessed is He. Can you say that? Blessed is He that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy. And to keep those things which are written therein for what? Time's at hand. A prophecy is a word from God to His people. This letter is written to real people that John knew, and it was to be a circular letter that would be sent to the seven churches in ancient Roman uh, province of Asia. So John wrote it. He was on the Isle of Patmos. He wrote it, seven churches. He understood as he was penning it, this is going to be circulated, these seven churches, because God wanted John to tell them where those churches were he told them what was wrong with them. He told them what they needed to do about it. And he gave them a promise if they did it. Can somebody say glory? He gave them a promise if they did it. Now, let's watch it. The process in which this revelation comes, I showed you this last week. Uh, the second sentence of the verse says, He, Jesus, made it known by sending his angel uh, to a servant, John, I, I was hoping to get to the angels today, and my introduction was too long. My mother always told me my introductions were too long. Uh, he, Jesus, made it. Yeah, yeah, I know. She says, hey, Alan, your introductions are just too long. Uh, he, Jesus, made it known by sending his angel to a servant, John. I wanted to get into these angels this week. With us. Will, I will be next week. I'll not review these first ones to get it set up. Y'all, y'all, you got to be here so I don't have to do it over. Okay. Now, in those words made it known, there is a hidden meaning there. It shows us by making it known. There's actually one Greek word, which in English uh, should be translated signified. And I showed you that to pronounce it more accurately, signified. So, uh, made known by signs or symbols. So we see here in the prophetic, this is a prophetic class. Uh, that this book is, is written in, in signs, signified, and we start reading the symbols and see what the symbols uh, mean. You might be sitting here saying, Canal, and I can't read, read symbols. Hang with me, and, and you, you will be able to. He symbolizes it to his servant, uh, John. Now, so we get into the seven churches here in one four quickly. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you in peace from him which he is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now do you get that visual? Start getting into signs. Start seeing visually. Seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you in peace from him which is, which was and which is to come. Does that give you an idea? From the seven spirits which are before his throne. Interesting visual. His name in Hebrew, of course, is Yahweh, which means I am. I am he who was, who is, and who was, and who is to come. Therefore, he is eternally the existing one. He gives all the he was, is. Now, you start looking at the book of Revelation. He's speaking in three periods, past, present, future. So he begins his type dialogue right here. Was, is, uh, is to come. This opening section sets up the main plot. Now watch this, that drives it to Revelation 21, 22. So you can, I've said this before, you can take the first two chapters of your Bible, y'all have heard me do this, I'm sure maybe it's a few haven't, maybe those online, but you can take Genesis 1 and 2, and, and then you can take Revelation 21 and 22. That's four chapters. 
And you can have a Bible. In other words, did you ever wonder what in the world God was doing this whole earth thing for? God, what are you up to? Read Genesis 1 and 2. Now, something happened in Genesis 3. Can you tell me what it is? Fall of man. Don't read the fall of man. Do Genesis 1 and 2. If Genesis 3 had not have happened, Revelation 21 would have been Genesis 3 and Revelation 22 would have been Genesis 4. Are you with me? Now, if you understand Genesis 1, 2, Revelation 21, 22, and put it together as God's original Bible, and then all of a sudden you had the fall of man in 3, then you had to put all of this in the middle to get us back up to speed to 21. Have you got it? That's basically what this Bible is all about. Jesus on the cross, all of this, God had to go through all this gyration and stuff to get us back in, up to speed with 21. Now, you can do this. Take the first three chapters of the Bible. Take the last three chapters of the Bible. First two chapters, one and two, creation, thirds, fall of man. Revelation 20 tells us about what God did about the fall of man. That's fun, isn't it? And then Revelation 21, 22. So if you want a little more complete condensed version, read Genesis 1, 2, 3, and then Revelation 20, 21, 22. Put that one together. And it'll show you what God did in light of. Now listen, you just can't make that. You can't throw a bunch of books together and make that happen. Right? You can't. You can't. And, and, and you're, talking, you're talking about, oh, in Genesis to... Uh, I don't, you're talking a good, I don't know, what, three or 4,000 years difference? Uh, 2,000 years of being pinned. Uh, and and how, can you, how can you make that happen? You, you can't make that happen. So as we're seeing this, I want you to understand that the book of Revelation and with the seven churches, he's driving it to Revelation 21, 22. You got a bunch of stuff that happens symbolically in the middle, but just understand the first the seven churches, he's driving them to, to the new Jerusalem, new heaven and new earth at 21, 22. Now, and from the seven spirits before his throne, now this is in the, uh, verse four, uh, this is the first set of sevens. Now when you get to book of Revelations, it's seven, 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 seven. Number seven, somebody tell me what it means in Hebrew. Complete, complete completion, completeness. All right. You're going to see all these sevens. I'm going to show you how in the book of Revelation, actually, there's, there's four main groups of sevens. Now, there's more, there are more sevens than four main groups, but you got four main groups, and then you got sevens within those four main groups, and I'll show you how it works if you're interested. When you find seven in anything in this book, it is a symbol of completeness. The secret of completeness is shown in Isaiah 11:2. The Spirit of the Lord... Uh, will rest upon him, number one, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, seven. If you want to know the seven spirits, uh, there it is, the Holy Spirit in its fullness right there. It speaks about the seven spirits uh, before the throne and will not go into depth on that other than that gives you where they come from. Now, this is, I love this part. It says, first he loves us. So if you, you know how husband, right? Well, I love you for you love me. No, I love you. Well, God loved us first. All right. Now, 
And from Jesus, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, he loved us first, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, which is Revelation 1, 5. He first loved us and he has washed us, which he has freed us. That's the reason the ways of the world are in argument of trying to convince us there's a difference in being washed and convinced. A washing comes because you receive that he loved you. Can anybody hear that? So Christian army, we don't win this war by trying to convince sinners. You just, you're not, it's not going to happen. You can argue till the cows come home. What happens is we help sinners. We love them as Christ loved us. And we've got to be careful and in standing for righteousness. But what we don't throw the sinner, as you've heard it said, out with the bathwater. And you hear me? Remember, everyone in this room was once to tear before you came a wheat. Our job is for the conversions of lost souls. That's our job. That's our job. Now, it's important that we learn and we go over Scripture and we learn what's going on around us so we know what time it is, how we're to act. It should push us to wanting to help more people. Didn't anybody hear that? Yeah. We'll almost lose our main weapon, which is loving people and helping people over the fight of trying to stand for what's right. We are to raise a standard, but you must raise a cross at the same time you raise a standard. Amen? So we'll pick up here next uh, week. What's my next slide? A priest's work is was to heal. Oh, mercy, I wish we could have done it today. We will pick up here next week. It's uh, a priest. We're going to see what the church's job is, job description is in these seven churches as we begin next week. Let's stand. Lord Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for your word, your will, your ways. We do ask and pray, O oh God, that anything that I've said that is not of you, I pray that it'll fall to the ground. If anything that I've said is of you and your spirit, I pray it'll be quickened to our hearts, that we might receive truth, total truth from your word. Lord Jesus, it's not my job to convince anybody. It is my job to bring truth, and I pray, oh God, that it will help us. And because it helps us, it will be sown in good ground. It will spring up and bring forth a great harvest. Be with us as we go into worship today, oh God. Lord Jesus, there's many that's sick among us, many with flu and, and with respiratory problems. and There's just a lot of sickness going through the our community and those that are online. I pray right now, God, for all sickness that's in this house and those that are watching online. We pray for them right now in the name of Jesus that there would be healing in this house, those that couldn't make it, and healing to those that are watching online. And Lord Jesus, we say that because we want to help everybody. <laughs> we want to help them with healing. And the church that was in agreement said, Amen and amen. Thank you.